0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is the History of the World Podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is a special episode on the colony of New Netherland for History of the World Podcast Illuminati member Ian van Alphen. beginning of the 17th century, global exploration was a major political activity for the wealthiest European nations, who were encouraging enterprise in order to bring the riches of newly discovered lands back to their own nations. The Dutch were happy to let their wealthiest entrepreneurs take advantage of the opportunities to fund their own private ventures, and so private companies were set up in order to organise the investments and distribute it effectively. The company favoured by the Dutch government was the Dutch East India Company, which was granted a monopoly on Asian trade activity, and so private investors would be invited to buy shares in the company in what was quite an unprecedented business practice at the time. The company became so powerful as a consequence that it developed the political power of a nation in its own right. For the Dutch East India Company, one of the most important strategies was to find the North East Passage, the Arctic Sea route to the Far East which had been searched for for many decades and especially by a great rival of the Dutch in terms of global exploration, the English. One English sea explorer called Henry Hudson had attempted to sail along the north coast of Russia thanks to the investment of English trading companies. But Hudson came back to England unsuccessfully with storage of large barriers of ice preventing safe passage. It's possible that Hudson fell out of favour as the right sailor to get the job done, but the Dutch East India Company were willing to invest in him, and so Hudson took advantage of the new opportunity to fulfil his ambitions with them. This time... Hudson would be granted the command of a Dutch flyboat called the Holverman, Man and he would set off along the north coast of Russia again. This time, it would be the same result. Ice would prevent his passage. Rather than go back to the Dutch Republic with another disappointing tale of failure, Hudson would turn his attention to the alternative northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage was an alternative but yet undiscovered means to reach the Far East by sea travel, but this time by navigating across the north of the American continent. This passage had been of interest to the English too, especially as they were now establishing colonies in North America, and Henry Hudson had some knowledge of them simply because of his English background. It was in July of sixteen o nine that Henry Hudson took the Halvermen to the coast of Newfoundland and then on to the coast of Nova Scotia, all of which are now Canadian territories. The indigenous peoples of these lands were quite used to European visits by now after sailing all the way down to Chesapeake Bay via Cape Cod. Hudson decided to turn back but this time he would investigate the waterways and rivers of the coastline at a closer distance. The Delaware River proved unnavigable so Hudson continued northwards and entered Lower Bay between Sandy Hook and Breezy Point what we know today as the entrance to New York Harbour. Upon entering the harbour Hudson recognized that he had options and chose the northbound river as it seemed the most likely to ultimately be a channel to the west. Unfortunately, it wasn't, and Henry Hudson had no choice but to turn back. Hudson headed back across the Atlantic but had a bit of a quandary. If he went back to the Dutch Republic, he may face repercussions for disobeying instructions and abandoning the North East Passage. So he chose the home nation of England, but the English were not best pleased with him either, effectively working for their enemies. Hudson would sail again in search of the North West Passage soon afterwards, but this time he never returned, disappearing into a body of water now named after him as Hudson Bay. The northbound river that Hudson attempted to navigate in the Halvermen is now called the Hudson River, also in his honour. The Halvermen and the journal written by one of Henry Hudson's crew members were taken back to the Dutch Republic. Dutch companies would show an interest in investigating the fur trade opportunities with the natives in this area of the Americas documented by Hudson's crew. The natives appeared to be friendly in the large part, but not completely. Hudson had had some serious trouble from some of the natives during his journeys. However, it was still felt that trade could be done, so seamen, including one Adrian Block, were sent to the areas explored by Henry Hudson in the early part of the 610s. Adrian Bloch attempted to map much of the area that Hudson had explored by exploring it himself in more detail. Bloch established a fur trading post at Fort Nassau, which was deep into the Hudson River Valley at the modern city of Albany. But competition was fierce between different Dutch companies competing for their share in the fur trade. In order to prevent costly altercations, these companies conceded that they should form a governing company responsible for ensuring fair and amicable competition and so was created the New Netherland Company. The New Netherland Company applied to the Dutch government for an exclusive patent to be able to monopolise the fur trade of the Hudson River Valley and its surrounding area. The patent came into effect in 1614 and prevented other companies from being involved in this particular fur trade route and upsetting the lucrative equilibrium. The New Netherland Company did not have its patent renewed by the Dutch government when it expired in 1618 and this could be down to the fact that there was a bigger picture to be considered. The Dutch had had ongoing issues with the Habsburgs who still occupied territory to their south in Europe, with control of the Habsburg Netherlands belonging to the Kingdom of Spain. The Dutch Republic wanted to encourage a monopoly similar to the Dutch East India Company that would be responsible in the large part for all of its transatlantic trade network, which would include their interests in Brazil and the Caribbean. It would be convenient for the business of New Netherland to be amalgamated into this monopoly, but the Spanish tried to deny the Dutch from forming this company within the terms of the peace agreement called the 12 Years' Truce between the two countries. Eventually, the importance and potential gains of such a well-organised equivalent became too large and it would provide the resource necessary to help them stand up against Spanish oppression and so the Dutch West India Company was formed. There would be a considerable opinion that the production of New Netherland would be increased if the Dutch were willing to consider the colonising of this area. This would mean finding individuals willing to settle in a new land on behalf of the Dutch West India Company and importing the necessary slave labor in order to sustain it. It would also mean having individuals who could negotiate with the indigenous American Indians to maintain peaceful relationships. It would not be easy to establish such a colony due to the investment required but the pressures of other countries such as the English establishing colonies further east on the coastal territories of the US state of Massachusetts could become a threat to Dutch control of New Netherland in the long term so the prospect of colonisation was becoming a necessity. The Dutch West India Company would transport Walloon and Flemish families to distinct Low Countries ethnicities over to New Netherland and settle them at Fort Orange, built in close proximity to Fort Nassau in the modern city of Albany, and on Governor's Island in New York Harbour, which the Dutch would call Notten Eiland. Other families were taken elsewhere across New Netherland, and so the colonisation of the modern city of New York and its surrounding areas by Europeans had begun. Trade The initial opportunities between Dutch explorers and American natives were discovered by Henry Hudson's party, who encountered the natives, some friendly, others not so friendly, while travelling from New York harbour up the Hudson River. One of the biggest discoveries by Europeans when arriving in the Americas was the tobacco plants, which would quickly become one of the most popular recreational drugs of the entire world. Hudson's crew would be offered tobacco in exchange for European knives, hatchets and beads. Other native offerings would include maize and pumpkins, two very American foodstuffs that have become popular worldwide. One of the largest trade attractions of the Native Americans were their furskins. The most popular pelt was that of the beaver and this was certainly among the most popular individual items for which Dutch merchants were willing to go to great lengths to be able to gain stock of. Another naval explorer called Hendrik Christiansen would be directly involved in the initial exchanges of the Van Tvenhuisen Company, a Dutch company whose members would go on to form an important part of the New Netherland Company and a company who would employ the services of Adrian Block. Despite us referring to the colonisation of Governor's Island as the origin of the city of New York, it is likely that Hendrik Christiansen built houses on the southern tip of Manhattan Island, with the name Manhattan being derived from the name given to the island by the locals, Manahatta. It is suggested that Manhattan Island was no more than a hunting ground for the nomadic Native Americans. The Wequasgeek were a tribe from further north on the east banks of the Hudson River Valley and are likely to have accessed the island from the modern borough of the Bronx, with the other tribes being the Kanasi, accessing Manhattan Island from their base in Long Island. The presence of a handful of European houses at the southern tip of Manhattan Island would have been of little concern to the Native Americans. Governorship. Trade with Native Americans was certainly not restricted to the Hudson River Valley. Cornelius Jacobson May was an explorer and trader who was actively involved in the reconnaissance missions of the New Netherland Company during its monopoly in the mid sixteen tens, around the same time as Adrian Bloch. After the New Netherland Company lost its patent in 1618, May was still sponsored to travel to New Netherland and trade with the locals. When the Dutch West India Company was granted the patent for trade in New Netherland, we have already learned that the company believed it necessary to colonise the area in order to protect it from rival Dutch companies and other European nations, with what the Dutch West India Company would deem to be illegal ambitions. May was invited to be involved in the process of the settlement of the first European families at Fort Orange and Nut Island, today's Albany and Governor's Island, and their livestock, which would include horses and cows, transported across the waters. May would assume the role of the Director of New Netherland on behalf of the Dutch West India Company and is likely to have been based on Governor's Island. But he would have also been responsible for exploring the opportunities to colonise other areas of New Netherland, such as the Delaware River further south, which would not assume its modern name until the following century. There he would establish a fort called Fort Nassau, not to be confused with Adrian Bloch's Fort Nassau, along the Hudson River. May's Fort Nassau was built on the New Jersey side of the Delaware River as it passes through what has become the modern city of Philadelphia. May would oversee the settlement of European families in the Delaware River Valley, referred to in those days as the South River and he would oversee the settlement of European families in the area of the modern US state of Connecticut. In 1625, the directorship of New Netherland passed into the hands of a man called Willem Verhulst, and then the following year, it would be a man called Peter Minui. This was quite a critical time in the story of the history of New York, because it was the time of the purchase of Manhattan Island from the Native Americans. This is something that New Yorkers see as the birth of their great city. Further scrutiny of the transaction suggests that this whole purchase agreement may have been dressed up for effect. The first thing that strikes me about this whole idea of a purchase is that there was absolutely no requirement for the European settlers to need to have full rights over Manhattan Island in its entirety. The island is over 22 square miles in size and there would have only initially have been a few dozen settlers. The other thing is the suggestion that the purchase was made from the Munsee, who were a comparatively belligerent sub-tribe of the Lenape, although it's not clear whether the Wukwazgik and the Kanasi came into this with their use of Manhattan Island, or whether the Munsee incorporated all of the tribes who spoke the wider group of Munsee languages. In short, there is a lot that is open to interpretation, and it is highly unlikely that Native Americans knowingly sold the entire island to Europeans for the value of 60 guilders, as described in a letter written by a man called Peter Scharren in 1626. It may be that the locals believed that they sold the rights to use the land for a period of time. If we look at a similar contract to rights to use particular lands on Staten Island, then it appears that European settlers were selling advanced wares created using modern technology not known to the Native Americans. Peter Minuit is named as the man behind these land purchase deals, but Willem Verhulst may have had a hand in the Manhattan purchase. Whatever happened more Europeans started building on the southern tip of Manhattan Island, and this was the beginnings of Fort Amsterdam. The directors were expected to consult with a representative council in the New Netherland before making any vital decisions in regards to the colony. Willem Verhulst's tenure appears to be quite brief and there is a suggestion that he wasn't a popular director. Peter Minuitz lasted longer but may have been ended after rumours of him turning a blind eye to illegal fur trading among the settlers not being declared to the Dutch West India Company. The settlers of the lands whose purchases were overseen by the director and his council were a diverse mixture of Europeans from a number of different nations looking for an opportunity to create their own private fortune. So it's hardly surprising to hear of some black market trading going on. International Competition As time went by and the directorship inevitably changed hands from one individual to another, the population of New Netherland would increase, with European babies being born on American soil and more and more migrants crossing the ocean to start their new life. During the 1630s, the English settlers of New England and of Virginia were growing more populous and more powerful, and this would bring them to the borders of New Netherland along the eastern seaboard to their east and to their south. At their easternmost fringes, the Dutch had built a trading post called Fort House of Hope near the Fresh River, which in modern terms was the origin of the city of Hartford on the Connecticut River, the river which had been explored by Adrian Bloch. However, English settlers also decided to establish settlements in close proximity to this Dutch fort from the 1630s. This would have concerned New Netherland, but they really didn't have as much resource invested in their colony as the English did, and so there was probably very little that they could do to combat it. They just had to deal with it in the best way possible. The former New Netherland director Peter Minuit was back in Europe when he was approached by the growing power of the Kingdom of Sweden to attempt to establish a Swedish trade colony in America and so he obliged and created the colony of New Sweden on the Delaware River Valley. Once again, New Netherland was really not willing to battle with New Sweden because it felt that its own interests were better invested in the success of Manhattan Island. William Keeft The sixth director of New Netherland was William Keeft, who assumed the role in 1638. He took over the role at around the time that the English colonists in the East had been involved in a conflict with the Pequots, who were American natives around the Connecticut River Valley. The New England settlers eliminated the Pequots and moved into their lands, thereby taking control of the river valley. But New Netherland still held their fort, House of Hope. By this time, the immigrant population of the colony of New Netherland likely exceeded eight thousand individuals so there was a considerable presence and a considerable amount of people to satisfy with such a large number of immigrants diseases such as smallpox spread among the native population who had no immunity to it and this would cause great numbers of deaths among the natives it does seem that the settlers and the natives had learned to coexist but there were always and often going to be disagreements and tensions between the two and it would take a steady nerve to maintain control. However, it does seem that William Keeft would make some brash decisions about dealing with issues involving disagreements between settlers and natives, and about demanding tributes from the natives living in close proximity to New Netherland-controlled lands. It seems that the natives were not too interested in entertaining this idea, despite the fact that they reminded that New Netherlands defended them against the natives of their native enemies, sometimes natives supported by English and French colonists. The murder of a colonist by a native caused Keefe to call a meeting with representatives of the population who would go on to form a council. Kieft's motivation to call a council of the people was to take advice on what repercussions there would be for the murder. Whether his aim was to convince the council of people that there should be a general repercussion for the wider native tribe is a definite question to ask because Kieft had demonstrated great indifference to the way that the natives were punished for their acts without trial which also resulted in attacks on the natives for things that they were later found out to not be responsible for. The council of the people took it upon themselves to advise Kieft on his administration of the colony, so Kieft ultimately dismissed them. So there was growing tension between Keith and the particular native tribes which divided opinions of the population and caused tension within the colony itself among the settlers. Brutal massacres of native tribes were seemingly rewarded by a keeft, which also encouraged revenge attacks by natives on colonist settlements some of the colonists actually appealed for help from the Dutch Republic to assist their desire to attack the natives and this was done without Keith's knowledge. The Dutch Republic passed the problem onto the Dutch West India Company who by this time had grown indifferent about the fortunes of New Netherland due to them having higher priorities elsewhere. So the entire structure of administration of New Netherland was now in a complete mess. This period is retrospectively called Kieft's War. It was a period where the colony of New Netherland, headed by William Kieft and their native allies, were engaged in an ongoing battle against angered natives, much to the concern of many of the colonists, fearing for their own lives and fortunes. The Dutch West India Company sent a temporary Director to New Netherland and instructed William Keefe to report back to the Dutch Republic following this disastrous sequence of events. Settlers were now deciding that New Netherland was not for them, and this meant that something needed to be done. While Keefe was back in the Dutch Republic, an uneasy truce was reached between the settlers and the Algonquian alliance, who were forced to concede to the power. ...of the New Netherland Province. Peter Stuyvesant It appears that the Dutch West India Company... ...had lost their faith in William Keeft's ability... ...to manage the New Netherland's province... ...and they made plans to send... ...one of their most trusted and able agents... ...Peter Stuyvesant... ...over to New Netherland... ...to investigate some vital reforms... ...to prevent further demoralisation of the colonists. Stuyvesant recognised that the authority of the Dutch West India Company would need to be maintained, so as much as he wanted to befriend the colonists, he would also need to maintain control for the company. He would initially clear out some troublesome representatives within the social hierarchy of New Netherland in order to strike a political equilibrium. The issue of William Keeft still feeling like he had been hard done by by being recalled was dealt with by Fortune when William Keeft was killed in a shipwreck just off the coast of Wales in 1647. This opened the door for Peter Stuyvesant to be the Director General of New Netherland. With the growing power of New England to the east and New Sweden to the south, it became clear that New Netherland was losing its borderlands and would need to change its entire view of itself to prevent itself from being engulfed by its European neighbours. The English colonists had already pushed the Dutch out of the Connecticut River Valley, causing New Netherland to have to abandon. Fort House of Hope at the modern city of Hartford in the Connecticut River Colony of New England. Stuyvesant would make it very clear that the remaining European settlers living around Fort Amsterdam on the southern tip of Manhattan Island needed to make an effort to improve their settlement by repairing the fort and creating institutional buildings for the community such as a church and a school. Hopefully this would encourage people to have their faith in New Netherland restored and prevent the colony from falling into the hands of another nation. Fort Orange River on the Hudson River from Fort Amsterdam was already in a position of thinking that its own fortunes would improve if it were just to take care of its own affairs because as a settlement it had nurtured a unique and peaceful relationship with the natives that could only have been endangered by the disagreements further south. This prompted Stuyvesant to commission a second fur trading post just north of Fort Orange called Beaverweig, which alongside Fort Orange would eventually become the modern city of Albany. Stuyvesant would protect Beaverweig's right to the trade monopoly of the upper Hudson River Valley. When we look at Peter Stuyvesant, it seems that we are watching a highly capable man fighting a battle that he ultimately couldn't win. It was Stuyvesant who made the necessary arrangements to turn the settlements around Fort Amsterdam into a proper city community called New Amsterdam. Stuyvesant was powerless to prevent the westward expansions of the New England colonies and as we mentioned previously, he had to allow them to take control of the Connecticut River Valley and its surrounding lands, much to the chagrin of Stuyvesant's official council of nine men. Stuyvesant just did not have the manpower, arms and financial support of the Dutch West India Company available to him to do anything meaningful about it though. Back in Europe, and particularly in Northern Europe, the Kingdom of Sweden had become very powerful and a threat to the territories of Northern Europe and particularly the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which the Swedes had invaded. This act gave Stuyvesant a justification to take an army into the lands occupied by New Sweden in the Delaware River Valley and take control of the lands that had been originally chartered and mapped by Dutch explorers in any case, and therefore should belong to New Netherland. Stuyvesant was successful in this venture, and New Sweden was eliminated. Back in Europe, the tensions between the Dutch and the English was at its high point during this period, and it was due to the two countries trying to exert their dominance over the same local and global trade routes. Competition for global trade dominance between the European nations was fierce during the 17th century. The Dutch West India Company had been kicked out of their valuable colony in Brazil by the Portuguese, forcing a number of refugees to flee to New Netherland. But still, the Dutch West India Company were unable to send the resources that Stuyvesant desperately needed to improve the colony against the expansions of the New England colonies. When the monarchy of England had been restored in 1660, the new King Charles II was encouraged to demonstrate the strength of the monarchy by demonstrating its superiority over the Dutch by allowing private English vessels to attack Dutch ships and allowing his navy to capture Dutch trading posts. This was further extended by Charles, declaring that because the Italian explorer John Cabot had been sent under the commission of the Kingdom of England to explore the coast of North America right the way back in the late 15th century, that New Netherland was first explored by the English and therefore was the property of the English. He would award the Dutch province to his brother James, the Duke of York, and James would send one of his groom of the chambers, Richard Nichols, to sail across the Atlantic and claim New Netherland's surrender from Peter Stuyvesant in 1664. Stuyvesant was not interested in surrender however and so he made plans to defy the invasion but the reality was that Stuyvesant simply did not have the resources to be able to resist the English especially as he had spent a lot of the lead-up years to this fateful date in history fighting natives in the esopus Wars. The English had no desire to be brutal towards the residents of New Netherland though as they promised liberty if they surrendered peacefully and so the population believed that this was the only solution in any case. Peter Stuyvesant sent the Articles of Capitulation to the Dutch West India Company which handed control of New Netherland to Richard Nicholls who promptly renamed New Amsterdam new york in honor of james the duke of york stuyvesant had to report back to the dutch republic but he was able to return to new york city where he went back to his farm that he had resided at during his time as director general and he lived out his final years until 1672 stuyvesant's descendants are still closely associated with new york right up until the present day. It is very interesting to analyse Peter Stuyvesant's role in the creation of one of the most influential cities in the formation of modern American culture and values. The modern concept of freedom and liberty that is championed by the constitutional mantra of the United States of America is attributed historically to the attitudes of the early modern Dutch Republic who founded the city in the first place. The Dutch Republic was a haven of religious tolerance in the face of a very oppressive and intolerant Catholic attitude in Europe stemming from the late medieval period. Rather ironically, Peter Stuyvesant was very intolerant of religious pluralism in New Amsterdam, being firmly committed to the supremacy of the Dutch Reformed Church. So when the English arrived in New Amsterdam in 1664, despite the clear capabilities of Stuyvesant, many would have welcomed the change due to the likelihood of more freedom of religious practice without him. The English conquest of New Amsterdam was part of the escalation which led to outright conflict between the Netherlands and England in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which despite the Dutch gaining the upper hand in, they gave up their claims on New Netherland. The English would split New Netherland into colonies similar to the ones established earlier in the century on the Connecticut River Valley, which are quite recognisable as the modern states of the USA and in particular Connecticut, Delaware, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York and Pennsylvania. In the following decade in the 1670s the French encouraged the English to renew their conflicts with the Dutch which prompted the Dutch to send a fleet of 21 ships across the Atlantic to New York City in 1673 the Dutch were actually successful in retaking the city nine years after they had originally lost it. And in September 1673 had installed a man called Antony Culver as the new Director General. The name of the city of New York was changed to New Orange and the Dutch were back in charge. For those of you who may be surprised by this turn of events you'll probably be unsurprised to learn that around six months later at the conclusion of the Third Anglo-Dutch War in the Treaty of Westminster the city was restored to the English and its name reverted back to New York. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the History of the World podcast about New Netherland. The fascinating story about the origin of New York City and of the surrounding US states and and the the origin of those states. Uh, Great uh, subject choice there by Ian Van Alphen, who um, has uh, contributed uh, to the History of the World podcast Uh, and as such is a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and earned the right to commission that special episode. So thank you Ian and I hope uh, sincerely that you did enjoy that story. The Ancient World Cup Well this week was match number 10 in the second round and it pitted the Minoans against the Huns. And uh, all the votes were counted up. We had 41 votes across the various platforms, the Tapper Talk discussion forum, the History of the World podcast uh, Facebook page, the History of the World podcast unofficial fan uh, group, and uh, the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages Facebook page and the Twitter account uh, for the History of the World podcast. All the votes were gathered together And uh, going through to the next round uh, to face the Romans will be the Minoans with 71% of the vote, which means that we have to say goodbye to the Huns who only achieved 29% of the vote. So uh, uh, into the next stage, uh, the last 16 uh, for the Minoans. So thank you very much everyone who voted this week coming up. Uh, Will be match number eleven, and we will be seeing the Parthians, who were the um, who were the sort of the Bactrian Sogdiana area, sort of East Caspian Sea coastal peoples, who uh, managed to um, get control of the entirety of the Persian Empire and um and did battle um after sort of conquering the seleucids the hellenistic uh, Perth, uh persians um and uh did uh, plenty of battles with the romans during the roman heyday so very powerful parthian persians um against the berbers of north africa the berbers who are the indigenous people of the north african maghreb and uh, Tunisia, around the lands of ancient Carthage, um, and uh, played a very important part in the relationship between the Romans and uh, the subsequent Germanic tribes and the Arab uh, peoples who came afterwards. So the very significant history to the North African indigenous people known as the Berbers. Voting will commence over the course of next week, and uh, there you have it: the uh, the Parthians versus the Berbers. Don't forget to keep your eyes open on the social media and and uh, get ready to vote. Listener messages and reviews. History of the World podcast Illuminati member Lynn Dowling wrote in and said, "Hi Chris and fellow Illuminati. A friend recommended." The John Reader book, Africa, a biography, so I checked it out from the library and was blown away. I learned so much, so I second Chris's opinion of it. Also, many years ago, early 80s, there was a great comedy, The Gods Must Be Crazy, about the Bushmen of the Kalahari. I see that it is now available on Hulu i don't remember it being disrespectful but apologize if parts of it were perhaps i just remember how thoroughly enjoyable it is one gets to enjoy the clicking language they speak throughout the movie i was curious to hear if chris would try to speak it and you didn't disappoint chris you did a great job and showed a lot of, uh, of courage by attempting it thanks for the debrief chris i sure feel Don't feel you owe us anything, but appreciate the thought anyway. Yes, of course, you're talking about the the debrief uh, audios or 10, 15 minute episodes that we make on the Patreon page. Um, If you want to listen to them, you just simply sign up to become uh, a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, by visiting the Patreon page and uh opting to make a monthly contribution you can listen to those debrief episodes we make every week after the main episode and just discuss some of the sources the materials that we used uh when making the episode and uh you know sometimes we look at what's coming up the following week as well um, Yes, I'm aware of the film, The Gods Must Be Crazy, because a friend of mine uh, told me about it a few weeks ago, and I wasn't aware of it before he told me about it. yeah, but certainly, yes, um we are talking about the same peoples, um generally speaking, uh, that were the feature of uh, the podcast episode on the Khoisan. Uh, but thank you very much, uh, Lynn, for your message. Uh, Russell Noland wrote in saying just listening to the podcast where you talk about pronunciation of places and names. If there is no consensus, then you do what you feel is correct. Uh, You do you, Chris, and don't worry about a few Americans uh, that cannot adjust. Keep up the great work, mate. Russ, well, I I don't tend to get many Americans uh, telling me uh, that uh, I need to adjust. But, uh, yeah, certainly... um, the accent is um, not as common as maybe other podcasters' my accent, uh, but then I also do want to uh, show a bit of you know respect to other cultures and and their dialects, and uh, certainly this this came up last week, didn't it? I think when we were talking about the pronunciation, but the, using the pronunciation Chingis Khan instead of Genghis Khan because it was. Uh, much more in line with uh the Mongolian uh, version of his name. So, um, yeah, certainly I think, um, as historians, we we do owe it uh to the global population to really try and consider that whether our version of names is is far too anglicized for the for the global community. So, uh, yeah, that's certainly how I think, but everyone will have a different opinion. But thank you very much, Russell. Uh, Don McPhee wrote in and said, hey, Chris, good day from Central Coast, New South Wales, Australia. Just wanted to drop your line to say thank you uh, for introducing me to the World of History podcast. I decided to start listening to the podcast uh, when I was driving between Canberra and the Central Coast of New South Wales about a four hour drive on an almost weekly basis. Always had a fascination with history, although I was never quite clear on where everything sat in the timeline of human history, as in which Persians were around at the Battle of Thermopylae and how they were different from the Parthians that killed Crassus, etc. Uh, yours was the first podcast I discovered and was exactly what I was looking for in both content and presentation. After months of bringing your series, uh, binging sorry your series, I finally caught up and started looking for other podcasts to fill the gap in my drive since the high quality content of uh, hot world was my benchmark many podcasts have been uh, tried and left in the dust because they're just not up to the standard you have taught me to expect i have since discovered several i enjoy such as the history of english anthology of heroes and a short history of and all thanks to hot world getting me into the platform keep up the good work and be good Uh, from Don. Thank you very much for the message, Don. Of course, um, many people will try their hand at uh, history podcasting and and they may not get the rewards from it uh, that they maybe imagined that they would, let's say. Um, It can be hard work uh, to create a podcast and um, I suppose you you are going to get various... um, you're going to get various attempts and various different standards. Sometimes the sound quality, if the sound quality isn't up to scratch, um, it can sort of take away from a very knowledgeable and capable presenter. Um, so that can be a shame. You so you have to sort of, I think, when you're podcasting, just make an effort to try and make it as listenable as possible. But thank you, Don. A uh, very kind message um moving on moving on bill morrison has written in and said just found your excellent podcast and i'm currently at the early stages of the agricultural revolution brilliant work so far well done i'm binge listening at home here in switzerland so thank you for writing in from switzerland bill um I got another message from Russell Noland. A comment you made at the end of the special episode on Zoroastrianism resonated with me a great deal. The part religion plays as a motivating factor and incentive is sometimes underestimated in today's increasingly secular society. The great building projects of the ancient world were just as likely competed by peoples who were motivated by religious and spiritual beliefs than the lash at uh, uh, compulsory, compulsory means in my days of secondary school it was taught that slaves were forced to complete all of these great works just the full cheerio um, I suppose it always takes me back to the, the recent discoveries about the pyramid builders and how uh, they how they uh, stayed in uh, very well looked after camps and, and were eating good food and uh, were certainly um, not alien to uh, a, you know a bit of a drink and a sing song after a hard day's work, um, and um, it would have certainly, or um, so historians sort of believe, it was uh, somewhat of an honour to be invited to take part in the building of these incredible monuments. So yes, I agree, uh, Russell. I think you've tapped into something there quite significant. OK, well, thank you very much, everyone, uh, for listening to this week's episode. And uh, that's uh, that sort of wraps it up for another week. Next week, a um, bit of a strange scenario. So we're going to be doing another special episode. Uh, but this time it's going to be about uh, the volcanic winter of the year five. Thirty-six. Now, this may be an unfamiliar subject um, for, uh, for many of you, but this is a theory that come about due to some uh, references in texts that uh, caused a bit of a scientific investigation as to what may have happened. So, this mysterious um, volcanic winter that was penned by some contemporaries who noticed um, significant changes in in the weather conditions. Um, Yeah, it certainly deserves a thorough investigation, so we're going to do that next week um, and uh, tell the story of what we do know about this supposed volcanic winter of the year 536, and this subject is brought to you uh, thanks to uh, a member of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, Matt Hayden, who uh, specially requested this topic. So thank you, Matt, and uh, hopefully you're looking forward to next week when we dig a bit deeper into this, uh, into this mysterious uh, event uh, from almost uh, 1500 years ago. Uh, so, uh, thanks uh, for that and hope to see you next week. Don't forget to check out the Patreon special. Um, we're going to be doing like a 10-minute debrief. I'm going to put the kettle on, make myself a cup of coffee and uh, chat a little bit about the sources used for this week's episode and, uh, you know, the challenges revolving around writing it. Um, so uh, I'll see you there and uh, otherwise uh, until next week be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link email the show at History of the World podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.